This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Chan. Mysticism, a study in nature and development of spiritual consciousness by Evelyn Underhill. Second half of Part 2, Chapter 8. From the point of view of mystical psychology, our interest in ecstasy will centre in two points. 1. What has the mystic to tell us of the object of his ecstatic perception? 2. What is the nature of the peculiar consciousness which he enjoys in his trance? That is to say, what news does he bring us as to the being of God and the powers of man? It may be said generally that on both these points he bears out amplifies and expresses under formulae of greater splendour, with an accent of greater conviction, the general testimony of the contemplatives. In fact, we must never forget that an ecstatic is really nothing else than a contemplative of a special kind, with a special psychophysical makeup. Moreover, we have seen that it is not always easy to determine the exact point at which entrancement takes place and deep contemplation assumes the ecstatic form. The classification, like all classifications of mental states, is an arbitrary one, whilst the extreme cases present no difficulty. There are others, less complete, which form a graduated series between the deeps of the quiet and the heights of rapture. We shall never know, for instance, whether the ecstasies of Plotinus and of Pascal involved true bodily entrancement, or only a deep absorption of the unitive kind. So too the language of many Christian mystics when speaking of their raptures is so vague and metaphorical that it leaves us in great doubts as to whether they mean by rapture the abrupt suspension of normal consciousness or merely a sudden and agreeable elevation of soul. Ravishing, says Rohl, as it is showed, in two ways is to be understood— one manner, forsooth, in which a man is ravished out of fleshly feeling, so that for the time of his ravishing, plainly he feels naught in flesh, nor what is done of his flesh, and yet he is not dead, but quick, for yet the soul to the body gives life. And on this manner saints sometime are ravished, to their profit and other men's learning, as Paul ravished to the third heaven. And on this manner sinners also in vision sometime are ravished, that they may see joys of saints and pains of damned for their correction, and many other as we read of. Another manner of ravishing there is, that is lifting of mind into God by contemplation. And this manner of ravishing is in all that are perfect lovers of God, and in none of them but that love God. And as well this is called a ravishing as the other, for with a violence it is done, and as it were against nature. It is, however, very confusing to the anxious inquirer when, as too often, lifting of mind by contemplation is as well called a ravishing as the other, and ecstasy is used as a synonym for gladness of heart. Here, so far as is possible, these words will be confined to their strict meaning, and not applied generally to the description of all the outgoing and expansive states of the transcendental consciousness. What does the mystic claim that he attains in this abnormal condition, this irresistible trance? The price that he pays is heavy, involving much psychophysical wear and tear. 
he declares that his rapture or ecstasy includes a moment, often a very short and always an indescribable moment, in which he enjoys a supreme knowledge of, or participation in, divine reality. He tells us under various metaphors that he then attains pure being, his source, his origin, his beloved, is engulfed in the very thing for which he longs, which is God. O wonder of wonders, cries Eckhart, when I think of the union the soul has with God, he makes the enraptured soul to flee out of herself, for she is no more satisfied with anything that can be named. The spring of divine love flows out of the soul and draws her out of herself into the unnamed being, into her first source, which is God alone. This momentary attainment of the source, the origin, is the theme of all descriptions of mystic ecstasy. In Roman Mercerin's Book of the Nine Rocks, that brief and overwhelming rapture is the end of the pilgrim's long trials and ascents. The vision of the infinite lasted only for a moment. When he came to himself, he felt inundated with life and joy. He asked, Where have I been? And he was answered, In the upper school of the Holy Spirit. There you were surrounded by the dazzling pages of the Book of Divine Wisdom. Your soul plunged therein with delight, and the Divine Master of the school has filled her with an exuberant love by which even your physical nature has been transfigured. Another friend of God, Alina von Krevelsheim, who was of so abnormal a psychic constitution that her absorption in the Divine Love caused her to remain dumb for seven years, was touched by the hand of God at the end of that period, and fell into a five days ecstasy, in which pure truth was revealed to her, and she was lifted up to an immediate experience of the Absolute. There she saw the interior of the Father's heart, and was bound with chains of love, enveloped in light, and filled with peace and joy. In this transcendent act of union, the mystic sometimes says that he is conscious of nothing, but it is clear that this expression is figurative for otherwise he would not have known that there had been an act of union, were his individuality abolished, it could not have been aware of its attainment of God. What he appears to mean is that consciousness so changes its form as to be no longer recognisable or describable in human speech. In the paradoxical language of Richard of St. Victor, in a wondrous fashion, remembering we do not remember, seeing we do not see, understanding we not understand, Penetrating we do not penetrate. In this indescribable but most actual state, the whole self, exalted and at white heat, is unified and poured out in one vivid act of impassioned perception, which leaves no room for reflection or self-observation. That aloof somewhat in us, which watches all our actions, splits our consciousness, has been submerged. The mystic is attending exclusively to eternity, not to his own perception of eternity, that he can only consider when the ecstasy itself is at an end. All things I then forgot, my cheek on him who for my coming came, all ceased and I was not, leaving my cares and shame among the lilies and forgetting them. This is that perfect unity of consciousness, that utter concentration on an experience of love which excludes all conceptual and analytic acts. Hence, when the mystic says that his faculties were suspended, that he knew all and knew naught, 
He really means that he was so concentrated on the absolute that he ceased to consider his separate existence, so merged in it that he could not perceive it as an object of thought, as the bird cannot see the air which supports it, nor the fish the ocean in which it swims. He really knows all but thinks naught, perceives all but conceives naught. The ecstatic consciousness is not self-conscious. It is intuitive, not discursive. Under the sway of a great passion, possessed by a great idea, it has become a single state of enormous intensity. In this state it transcends our ordinary processes of knowledge and plunges deep into the heart of reality. A fusion which is the anticipation of the unitive life takes place, and the ecstatic returns from this brief foretaste of freedom, saying, I know, as having known, the meaning of existence. The sane centre of the universe, at once the wonder and the assurance of the soul. This utter transformation of the soul in God, says St. Teresa, describing the same experience in the official language of theology, continues only for an instant. Yet while it continues, no faculty of the soul is aware of it, or knows what is passing there. Nor can it be understood while we are living on the earth. At least God will not have us understand it, because we must be incapable of understanding it. I know is by experience. The utterances of those who know by experience are here of more worth than all the statements of psychology, which are concerned of necessity with the outward signs of this inward and spiritual grace. To these we must go if we would obtain some hint of that which ecstasy may mean to the ecstatic. When the soul, forgetting itself, dwells in that radiant darkness, says Suso, it loses all its faculties and all its qualities, as St. Bernard has said. And this, more or less completely, according to whether the soul, whether in the body or out of the body, is more or less united to God. This forgetfulness of self is, in a measure, a transformation in God, who then becomes, in a certain manner, all things for the soul, as Scripture saith. In this rapture the soul disappears, but not yet entirely. It acquires, it is true, certain qualities of divinity, but does not naturally become divine. To speak in the common language, the soul is wrapped by the divine power of resplendent being, above its natural faculties, into the nakedness of the nothing. Here Suso is trying to describe his rapturous attainment of God in the negative terms of Dionysian theology. It is probable that much of the language of that theology originated not in the abstract philosophizings, but in the actual ecstatic experience of the Neoplatonists, who, Christian and pagan alike, believed in, and sometimes deliberately induced, this condition as the supreme method of attaining the one. The whole Christian doctrine of ecstasy, on its metaphysical side, really distends from that great practical transcendentalist Plotinus, who is known to have been an ecstatic, and has left in his sixth Aeneid a description of the mystical trance obviously based upon his own experiences. Then, he says, the soul neither sees nor distinguishes by seeing, nor imagines that there are two things, but becomes, as it were, another thing, ceases to be itself and belong to itself. It belongs to God and is one with him, like two concentric circles, concurring they are one, but when they separate, they are two. 
since in this conjunction with deity there were not two things, but the perceiver was one with the thing perceived, if a man can preserve the memory of what he was when he mingled with the divine, he would have within himself an image of God. For there nothing stirred within him, neither anger nor desire, nor even reason, nor a certain intellectual perception, nor, in short, was he himself moved, if we may assert this. But being in an ecstasy, tranquil and alone with God, he enjoyed an unbreakable calm. Ecstasy, says Photinus in another part of the same treatise, is another mode of seeing, a simplification and abandonment of oneself, a desire of contact, rest, and a striving after union. All the phases of the contemplative experience seem to be summed up in this phrase. It has been said by some critics that the ecstasy of Plotinus was different in kind from the ecstasy of the Christian saints, that it was a philosophic rhapsody, something like Plato's saving madness, which is also regarded on somewhat insufficient evidence as being an affair of the head and entirely unconnected with the heart. At first sight, the arid metaphysical language in which Plotinus tries to tell his love offers some ground for this view. Nevertheless, the ecstasy itself is a practical manner and has its root not in reason but in a deep-seated passion for the absolute which is far nearer to the mystic's love of God than to any intellectual curiosity, however sublime. The few passages in which it is mentioned tell us what his mystical genius drove him to do, and not what his philosophical mind encouraged him to think or say. At once, when we come to these passages, we notice a rise of temperature, an alteration of values. Plotinus the ecstatic is sure, whatever Plotinus the metaphysician may think, that the union with God is a union of hearts, that by love he may be gotten and holden, but by thought never. He, no less than the medieval contemplatives, is convinced, to quote his own words, that the vision is only for the desirous, for him who has that loving passion which causes the lover to rest in the object of his love. The simile of marriage, of conjunction as the soul's highest bliss, which we are sometimes told that we owe in part to the unfortunate popularity of the Song of Songs, in part to the sexual aberrations of celibate saints, is found in the work of this hard-headed pagan philosopher, who was as celebrated for his practical kindness and robust common sense as for his transcendent intuitions of the one. The greatest of the pagan ecstatics, then, when speaking from experience, anticipates the Christian contemplatives. His words, too, when compared with theirs, show how delicate are the shades which distinguish ecstasy such as this from the highest forms of horizon. Tranquil and alone with God, mingled for an instant of time like two concentric circles with the divine life, perceiver and perceived made one. This is as near as the subtle intellect of Alexandria can come to the reality of that experience in which the impassioned monoideism of great spiritual genius conquers the rebellious senses, and becomes, if only for a moment, operative on the highest levels accessible to the human soul. Self-mergence, then, that state of transcendence in which, the barriers of selfhood abolished, we receive the communication of life and of beatitude, in which all things are consummated and all things are renewed, is the secret of ecstasy, as it was the secret of contemplation. 
on their spiritual side, the two states cannot, save for convenience of description, be divided. Where contemplation becomes expansive, outgoing, self-giving, and receives a definite fruition of the absolute in return, its content is already ecstatic. Whether its outward form shall be so depends on the body of the mystic, not on his soul. Se lato della mente è tutto conspito, in Dio stando rapito, quien se non se retrova, in mezzo de sto mare, essendosi abissato, Dio non ce trova lato, onde ne possa uscire, de se non può pensare, ne dir como è formato, pero che, trasformato, altro si avvestire, tutto lo suo sentire, e ben sa notando, bellezza contemplando, la qual non ha colore. The activity of the mind is lulled to rest. Wrapped in God, it can no longer find itself. Being so deeply engulfed in that ocean, now it can find no place to issue therefrom. Of itself it cannot think, nor can it say what it is like, because transformed it hath another vesture. All its perceptions have gone forth to gaze upon the good and contemplate that beauty which has no likeness. Thus sang Jacopone de Todi of the ecstatic soul, and here the descriptive powers of one who was both a poet and a mystic bring life and light to the dry theories of psychology. He continues, and here in perhaps the finest of all poetic descriptions of ecstasy, he seems to echo at one point Plotinus, at another Richard of St. Victor, at once to veil and reveal the utmost secrets of the mystic life. Aperte son la porte facta a congiunzione, et è in possessione de tutte quel de Dio. Sente que non sentio, que non cognove vede, possede que non crede, gusta senza sapere. Pero casse perduto, tutto senza misura, possede quell'utura de summa smesuranza. Perce non ottenuto e sen altra mistura, quel ben senza figura, recera e abbondanza. The doors are flung wide. Conjoined to God, it possesses all that is in him. It feels that which it felt not, sees that which it knew not, possesses that which it believed not, tastes though it savours not. Because it is wholly lost to itself, it possesses that height of unmeasured perfection. Because it has not retained in itself the mixture of any other thing, it has received in abundance that imageless good. This ineffable awareness... And Dio stando rapito, this union with the imageless good, is not the only, though it is the purest, form taken by ecstatic apprehension. Many of the visions and voices described in a previous chapter were experienced in the entranced or ecstatic state, generally when the first violence of the rapture was past. St. Francis and St. Catherine of Siena both received the stigmata in ecstasy. Almost all the entrancements of Suso, and many of those of St. Teresa and Angelo Foligno, entailed symbolic vision, rather than pure perception of the Absolute. More and more, then, we are forced to the opinion that ecstasy, in so far as it is not a synonym for joyous and expansive contemplation, is really the name of the outward condition, rather than of any one kind of inward experience. Rapture in all the cases which we have been considering, and they are characteristic of a large group, the onset of ecstasy has been seen as a gradual, though always involuntary, process. 
Generally, it has been the culminating point of a period of contemplation. The self, absorbed in the horizon of quiet, or of union, or some analogous concentration on its transcendental interests, has passed over the limit of these states, and slid into a still ecstatic trance, with its outward characteristics of rigid limbs, cold and depressed respiration. The ecstasy, however, instead of developing naturally from a state of intense absorption in the divine vision, may seize the subject abruptly and irresistibly, when in his normal state of consciousness. This is strictly what ascetic writers mean by rapture. We have seen that the essence of the mystic life consists in the remaking of personality, its entrance into a conscious relation with the Absolute. This process is accompanied in the mystic by the development of an art expressive of his peculiar genius, the art of contemplation. His practice of this art, like the practice of poetry, music, or any other form of creation, may follow normal lines, at first amenable to the control of his will, and always dependent on his own deliberate attention to the supreme object of his quest, that is to say, on his horizon. His mystic states, however they may end, will owe their beginning to some voluntary act upon his part, a deliberate response to the invitation of God, a turning from the visible to the invisible world. Sometimes, however, his genius for the transcendent becomes too strong for the other elements of character, and manifests itself in psychic disturbances, abrupt and ungovernable invasions from the subliminal region which make its exercise parallel to the fine frenzy of the prophet, the composer, or the poet. Such is rapture, a violent and uncontrollable expression of genius for the absolute, which temporarily disorganizes and may permanently injure the nervous system of the self. Often, but not necessarily, rapture, like its poetic equivalent, yields results of great splendor and value for life. But it is an accident, not an implicit of mystical experience, an indication of disharmony between the subject's psychophysical makeup and his transcendental powers. Rapture, then, may accompany the whole development of selves of an appropriate type. We have seen that it is a common incident in mystical conversion, the violent uprush of subliminal intuitions by which such conversion is marked, disorganizes the normal consciousness overpowers the will and the senses, and entails a more or less complete entrancement. This was certainly the case with Suso and Wilman Nurswin, and perhaps with Pascal, whose certitude, peace, joy, sums up the exalted intuition of perfection and reality, the conviction of a final and unforgettable knowledge, which is characteristic of all ecstatic perception. In her spiritual relations, St. Teresa speaks in some detail of the different phases or forms of expression of these violent ecstatic states. Trance, which in her system means that which we have called ecstasy, and transport, or flight of the spirit, which is the equivalent of rapture. The difference between trance and transport, she says, is this. In a trance, the soul gradually dies to outward things, losing the senses and living unto God. But a transport comes on by one sole act of his majesty, wrought in the innermost part of the soul, with such swiftness that it is as if the higher part thereof were carried away and the soul were leaving the body. 
Rapture, says St. Teresa, in another place, comes in general as a shock, quick and sharp, before you can collect your thoughts or help yourself in any way. And you see and feel it as a cloud, or a strong eagle rising upwards and carrying you away on its wings. I repeat it, you feel and see yourself carried away, you know not whither. This carrying away sensation may even assume the concrete form which is known as levitation. When the upward and outward sensations so dominate the conscious field that the subject is convinced that she is raised bodily from the ground. It seemed to me, when I tried to make some resistance, as if a great force beneath my feet lifted me up. I know of nothing with which to compare it, but it was much more violent than the other spiritual visitations, and I was therefore as one ground to pieces. And further, I confess that it threw me into a great fear, very great indeed at first, for when I saw my body thus lifted up from the earth, how could I help it? Though the spirit draws it upwards after itself, and that with great sweetness if unresisted, the senses are not lost. At least I was so much myself as to be able to see that I was being lifted up. So Rulman Merswin said that in the rapture which accompanied his conversion, he was carried round the garden with his feet off the ground. And St. Catherine of Siena, in a passage which I have already quoted, speaks of the strength of the spirit which raises the body from the earth. The subjective nature of this feeling of levitation is practically acknowledged by St. Teresa when she says, When the rapture was over, my body seemed frequently to be buoyant, as if all weight had departed from it so much so that now and then I scarcely knew that my feet touched the ground. But during the rapture, the body is very often, as it were, dead, perfectly powerless. It continues in the position it was in when the rapture came upon it, if sitting, sitting. Obviously here the outward conditions of physical immobility coexisted with the subjective sensation of being lifted up. The self's consciousness, when in the condition of rapture, may vary from the complete possession of her faculties, claimed by St. Teresa, to a complete entrancement. However abrupt the oncoming of the transport, it does not follow that the mystic instantly loses his surface consciousness. There remains the power of seeing and hearing, but it is as if the things heard and seen were at a great distance far away. They have retreated, that is to say, to the fringe of the conscious field, but may still remain just within it. Though the senses may not be entirely entranced, however, it seems that the power of movement is always lost, as in ecstasy breathing and circulation are much diminished. By the command of the bridegroom, when he intends ravishing the soul, says St. Teresa, the doors of the mansions, and even those of the keep and of the whole castle, are closed for he takes away the power of speech, and although occasionally the other faculties are retained rather longer, no word can be uttered. Sometimes the person is at once deprived of all the senses, the hands and body becoming as cold as if the soul had fled. Occasionally no breathing can be detected. This condition lasts but a short while. I mean in the same degree, for when this profound suspension diminishes, the body seems to come to itself, and gain strength to return again to this death which gives more vigorous life to the soul. This spiritual storm, then, in St. Teresa's opinion, 
enhances the vitality of those who experience it, makes them more living than before. It initiates them into heavenly secrets, and if it does not do this, it is no true rapture, but a physical weakness, such as women are prone to, owing to their delicacy of constitution. Its sharpness and violence, however, leave considerable mental disorder behind. This supreme state of ecstasy never lasts long, but although it ceases, it leaves the will so inebriated, and the mind so transported out of itself, that for a day, or sometimes for several days, such a person is incapable of attending to anything but what excites the will to the love of God. Although wide awake enough to this, she seems asleep as regards all earthly matters. But when equilibrium is re-established, the true effects of this violent and beatific intuition of the Absolute begin to invade the normal life. The self which has thus been caught up to awareness of new levels of reality is stimulated to fresh activity by the strength of its impressions. It now desires an eternal union with that which it has known, with which for a brief moment it seemed to be merged. The peculiar talent of the mystic, power of apprehending reality which his contemplations have ordered and developed and his ecstasies express, here reacts upon his life process, his slow journey from the many to the one. His nostalgia has been increased by a glimpse of the homeland, his intuitive apprehension of the absolute, which assumes in ecstasy its most positive form, spurs him on towards that permanent union with the divine which is his goal. Such great graces, says St. Teresa, leave the soul avid of total possession of that divine bridegroom who has conferred them. Hence the ecstatic states do not merely lift the self to an abnormal degree of knowledge. They enrich her life, contribute to the remaking of her consciousness, develop and uphold the strong and stormy love which drives her home. They give her the clearest vision she can have of that transcendent standard to which she must conform, entail her sharpest consciousness of the inflow of that life on which her little striving life depends. Little wonder, then, that, though the violence of the onset may often try his body to the full, the mystic comes forth from a good ecstasy, as Pascal from the experience of the fire, humbled yet exultant, marvellously strengthened, and ready not for any passive enjoyments, but rather for the struggles and hardships of the way, the deliberate pain and sacrifice of love. In the third degree of ardent love, says Richard of St. Victor, love paralyzes action. Union, copula, is the symbol of this state. Ecstasy is its expression. The desirous soul, he says finally, no longer thirsts for God, but into God. The pull of its desire draws it into the infinite sea. The mind is borne away into the abyss of divine life, and, wholly forgetful of exterior things, knows not even itself, but passes utterly into its God. In this state, all earthly desire is absorbed in the heavenly glory. Whilst the mind is separated from itself, and whilst it is borne away into the secret place of the divine mystery, and is surrounded on all sides by the fire of divine love. It is inwardly penetrated and inflamed by this fire, and utterly puts off itself and puts on a divine love. And being conformed to that beauty which it has beheld, it passes utterly into that other glory. Thus does the state of ecstasy, 
contribute to the business of deification, of the remaking of the soul's substance in conformity with the goodness, truth, and beauty which is God. Being conformed to that beauty which it has beheld, it passes utterly into that other glory, into the flaming heart of reality, the deep but dazzling darkness of its home. End of part two, chapter eight.